What most of what I'm going to share today um, is gleaned from a book. It's called Knowing Jesus is Everything by Alejandro Bullion. And uh, I have some stories today. And so I'm going to start with a story about Alejandro himself. He's an Adventist pastor and a well-known evangelist. He is from Peru, South America. Alejandro grew up in church. He loved church. When he, he was considered a good church member as a youth, he was baptized at age 13. And after, co- after high school, he studied in college to be the minister. And, but he always kind of felt despair. He thought he could never make a mistake. He was very distressed. He felt like he was a great sinner. He knew all the doctrines. He knew the church rules. And he also knew hundreds of Bible texts. But rules seemed to dominate his mind, and he didn't have much peace. Well, at the time of this story, he was a missionary to the Campus Indians in a remote region of Peru near the Amazon area. Well, Alejandro, I'll try to say that his name right, grew up in the city, but early in his ministry, he pastored this remote region. Well, he planned a two-hour walk through the forest to visit one of the villages in his pastoral district. Well, that day, things did not go as planned. And most of you are familiar with, if anything can go wrong, it will. Yeah, well, that's, that's what happened to Alejandro that day. He lost the trail, and he couldn't find it again. Thick clouds arrived, announcing an approaching storm. Heavy rain and darkness came. So he sat under a tree and he pled with God to help him find the trail again. Well, the rain decreased, so he started out walking again through the mud and the dark. He was wet, tired, hungry. He was in despair. Well, he thought at first he might sit and wait till dawn the next morning. Then while he sat, he thought, what if a wild animal came? He was a city boy. He didn't know the jungle. So terror overwhelmed him. And he began to run. And he ran like crazy. He ran as if someone were after him. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, then he fell down a 15-foot embankment. And he was worse off. Now he's covered with mud from head to foot. And it's dark. And it's raining again. So he found a small tree and he grabbed it trying to get out. But it came out by the roots, and he slipped back down into the mud. Not a very good day, was it? (laughs) Uh, The next bush he grabbed caused excruciating pain. He let go and slipped back again, and this time he had to pull the thorns out of his hand. Well, now he was at the point of tears. Was it exhaustion? Fear of a wild animal? Hunger? No, really, it was none of those. He saw that his Christian life was quite similar to this experience. He was always trying to get up. He was always trying to follow all the rules and commandments, yet he always found himself trapped in the same place. He thought, I'm lost in the church. I'm observing the rules, but I'm still lost. And the worst part was he was a minister. That night, he realized for the first time his problem. He was lost in a jungle of doctrines, rules, laws, and theology. He was lost in church. He cried like a baby. He was lonely, and Jesus seemed so far away. He knew a name, but not the person. 
He loved the church, but not the Lord of the church. And at that moment, he needed the person. He needed Jesus. He needed a miracle to get out of that pit. So he started shouting. Maybe someone would hear him. And he heard a distant voice. So he shouted back. Again, he heard the voice. He kept shouting, and the voice got closer. Soon he heard footsteps. And then he saw an Indian who stretched out his arm, took his hand, and pulled him up out of there. He was strong. Who are you? What's your name? But no answer. Where did you come from? Still silence. The Indian gripped his arm, and the two started walking. They continued in silence for a time. But before long, Alejandro saw the lights of the village he was seeking. He thought he was safe. He started running, but he slipped and fell again. Again, the Indian stretched out his arm, seized his hand, and took him to the shack with the light and his friend John, where he immediately collapsed in sleep. Upon awakening the next morning, his friend John asked, How did you find my shack in the middle of the night? I lost the trail, was his answer. It was the Indian who brought me here. What Indian? The one who was with me last night when I got here. He said, there was no Indian with you last night. Alejandro couldn't say anything. So he went to a nearby small waterfall to wash off. He dropped to his knees And he heard the musical sound of the water splashing on the rocks and the birds singing, and he prayed. He said, Lord Jesus, I know you are not a doctrine. You are a wonderful person. Lord, I know now why I wasn't happy. I've been walking alone all my life. Now I have you. I want to always walk with you and hold your all-powerful arm. I'm lost without you. I know you're not only in heaven, you are right here by my side. I know what I was missing, and it was you, Jesus. Well, from that point on, Alejandro's outlook completely changed. He now regards Christian living as a wonderful experience of walking with Jesus, not a heavy set of rules and regulations. All that was meaningless before now makes sense. You know, he never did discover if that Indian was a human or an angel. But it really didn't matter. He needed the help of a powerful friend, and he found Jesus. Makes us wonder, how could we not love Jesus? You know, if you ask your little child, you love Mommy? Do you love Daddy? They say, sure, I love you. And if you continue, why do you love me? Because you love me. Jesus tells us, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it sounds like we need to love and trust Jesus like the little children. There's another story this morning. It occurred many years ago at one of our church colleges. It's a love story of how one of the plainest, most ordinary fellows eventually married one of the prettiest girls at that school. When she was a freshman, all the handsome, smart, outgoing guys approached her with no success. The plain fellow, though, was just too shy to say anything to her, but he was very much in love with her. Months went by, and the love in his heart continued to grow. 
Rumors circulated that she would not be coming back for the second semester because of lack of funds to pay her tuition. So the young man went to the school administrator and offered to pay her school fees with the money he had earned selling books. It meant he would have to miss one entire school year and sell more books in order to continue his studies. The administrator tried to talk him out of his plan, but he did not succeed. It's my money, and I want to pay her tuition. Just keep this confidential. He sold books the next year. He was happy, but he also realized she might never give him a second look. The following year, he returned to school, and he was brave enough to eventually let her know how he felt. It was a sad moment, though. She despised him. Afterwards, a girlfriend spoke with her. Listen, you have a right to tell him no, but you should be more polite. You didn't have to hurt him. I know he's not handsome, he's not athletic, but he dropped out of school last year so that you could stay here, and he did it secretly because he loves you. The girl was overwhelmed. She was shocked, began to cry. She immediately went to the school administrator and asked if this was true. After learning it was, she felt humiliated, hurt, offended. But after she calmed down, thought about what he had done for her, she asked herself, would it be possible for me to find another boy on this earth who loves me to the point of sacrificing one year of his studies, hoping for no reward, and wishing that I would not even know what he was doing? She concluded, how could I not love someone who loves me so? You know, that should be our question about Jesus. How could I not love someone who loves me so? Well, now let's go back in time. After Adam and Eve sinned, they had to die because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But as human beings, we don't want to die, and many of us ask for forgiveness. We know we deserve death, so how can we be forgiven? For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Somebody had to pay the price, shed their blood. We know Jesus made that sacrifice. He lowered himself. He became human. You know what, though? He was poor. He was lonely. He was most of the time misunderstood. He was tempted in every way. Yet in all 33 years of his life, he never sinned. Never. Not once. He's the one who deserves to live and not us. The death we deserve, he took. The life he deserves, he offers to us all. Jesus died in our place. You know, but if anyone ever really completely understood that, should have been Barabbas. He was the criminal that was amazingly set free. The cross Jesus died on was made for Barabbas. Jesus, the meek, mild, and gentle, who shared love all the time, restored health to the sick and life to the dead, died in Barabbas' place, and our place. Jesus, remember, in the garden, in his humanity, he didn't want to do it. Remember what he said as he prayed in the garden? Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Most of all, he just wanted God's will to be done. Humanly, he was afraid to die. 
but his love for us was greater than his fears. He didn't think about his own rights, just God's will, and he wouldn't abandon us. Even if there had just been one of us, just you or me, he still would have gone through with it. He loves us so much, he wants us to be happy, and he wants us to be alive and live with him forever, eternally, now and forevermore. He wants to share God's kingdom with us. How could I not love someone who loves me so? We all need to accept his love and be born again. That makes me think about Nicodemus. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus one night about that. Nicodemus was a very intelligent, respected Jewish leader. And Jesus knew his innermost thoughts. Christ got to the heart of the matter with everybody. (laughs) And what he told Nicodemus was, you need to be born again. And you know, that must have hit Nicodemus like a physical blow. Jesus let him know he had a head full of theory and rules and laws, but Nicodemus was frustrated that he couldn't live up to all of them. But being born again, being converted, that would change him completely. But Nicodemus did not yet understand. And Nicodemus left that night just as empty as he came. But fortunately, the story doesn't end there. Many of us have the Nicodemus problem. We think because we've been baptized and our name's on the church books that we're converted. And I think many of us confuse the word conversion with conviction. But those two words have different meanings. Conviction involves your intellect. It means to firmly hold a belief. Conversion deals with the heart and the life. It's a change from one way of life to another way of life. You know, but because we grow up in a Christian family or maybe because we're baptized, we may think we're converted. Let's consider this. Back in the beginning, Adam and Eve had a perfect nature. They delighted in obeying. But after they sinned, they lost that perfect nature. And they acquired a new strange one, incapable of obeying and inclined to finding pleasure in all the wrong things, the sinful nature. And unfortunately, every single one of us inherited that nature when we're born and we're stuck with it. Because Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And Jeremiah also said, the heart's deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jesus told us, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. That doesn't sound like it gives us much hope to obey. But Jesus told Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now, I have another little illustration for you. Suppose a timber wolf has been watching and admiring the habits of a flock of peaceful sheep. He decides all animals should live in such a similar manner. So the wolf obtains a sheepskin and goes to live with the sheep. Now that wolf is going to have a challenging time. It Living that way is contrary to his nature. He might be likely to slip back into his old way of life. You know, grass might be kind of tasteless compared to the carcasses he's been used to eating. After some time of living with the flock of sheep, the wolf quietly gets up and runs away. He discards his sheepskin and lives as a wolf, doing that all that wolves do. 
Then on Sabbath, he wraps himself in his sheepskin and goes to church with the sheep, pretending that nothing wrong has happened. But the wolf knows better. Shame sweeps over him, and he implores God. You know I want to be a real sheep, but you know I was born a wolf. Please change my nature. And God, by a miracle, transplants that into that wolf the nature of a sheep. Then it's easy for the wolf to live like a sheep. Ezekiel tells us, A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And in Second Peter, Through these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God promises us a new nature. That divine nature is one that loves Jesus and finds delight in obeying. That is conversion. And no one sees the hand that lifts the burden or beholds the light descend from the courts above. The blessing comes when by faith the soul surrenders itself to God. Then that power which no human eye can see creates a new being in the image of God. And we need to realize that just as we all look different and we act different, conversion for each person is different. For some, it's an instantaneous thing. They know immediately they've been changed. For other people, it's gradual and slow. Some know the exact point in time, and others cannot pinpoint it at all. But what matters is that the nature has changed. The wolf has become a lamb. Now, the miracle of conversion happens when anyone willing to come to the cross of Jesus acknowledges three things. One, I'm a sinner. Two, I need Jesus, and I can't make this change myself. And three, I must have faith and believe that God can give me that new nature. Let's look back at the crowd that night Jesus was crucified. Nicodemus was there. And he remembered what Jesus had told him that night so long ago. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus could resist no longer. He now wanted his nature changed, and Jesus changed him. That timid man who dared to come to Jesus only in the darkness of night now was not afraid to declare publicly that Christ was his Savior. He and Joseph of Arimathea had not openly accepted the Savior while he was alive. That would have excluded them from the Sanhedrin, where they had hoped to protect him by their influence in the councils. Now that Jesus was dead, they no longer concealed their attachment to him. Joseph had gone to Pilate and boldly begged the body of Jesus. And that request had been granted. Nicodemus joined him and brought a costly 100-pound mixture of myrrh and aloes to embalm Jesus. They were able to do for Jesus what the poor disciples were unable to do. Nicodemus and Joseph reverently and gently removed Jesus from the cross with their own hands. Their tears fell fast as they looked on his bruised and lacerated form. But they wrapped him in linen with the spice mixture and gently laid him in Joseph's new tomb. The wealth of these two men had protected them from the malice of the priests and rulers. 
The next day on Sabbath gave Nicodemus time for reflection. He remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him that night so long ago that he must be lifted up, and also that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And now a clearer light illuminated his mind, and Jesus' words were no longer mysterious. He remembered Jesus' prayer for his murderers, his answer to the dying thief, and his final words, It is finished, which were spoken as a conqueror. He had seen the reeling earth, the heavens darkened, the shattered rocks, and the rent temple veil. His faith was now firmly and forever established. Nicodemus had been a very wealthy man. He used his wealth, though, in helping to sustain the early Christian church in Jerusalem and to advance the work of the gospel. But later in life, because of giving his goods away, he became poor. Yet his treasure is laid up in heaven. This change that occurred in Nicodemus's heart was a miracle. As we respond to God's voice calling us, we might wonder how God can change our life in one second. The Bible doesn't explain miracles, doesn't explain how Jesus turned the water into wine, or how he healed the sick people. Conversion's a miracle, but I just pray that each of us accept that miracle of conversion in our hearts and lives. And once we become converted and are baptized, God places in our heart his new nature. We're happy. But before too long, we all realize the old nature didn't go away. It's still with us, and we have the desire to sin that we always had. So what happened? That old nature was mortally wounded, but it's still alive. How could that be? Well, as soon as the old nature receives some food, it will start to recuperate from its wound. If it continues to receive more nourishment, it will eventually get well, and it will fight to expel the new nature from within us. Now we can understand why newly converted individuals struggle more with conflict than the non-converted. It's simple. The individual without Jesus only has one nature. That's the sinful one they were born with. That nature sins just as easily as water runs downhill. No conflict, nothing to oppose it. But once you commit to Jesus Christ, you now have a new nature. You got two. And it's in continual opposition to the old. So now we have conflict or opposition between the new and the old. And in Romans, Paul tells us about this. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do. That's a problem, but we all experience it. And he ends with, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The two natures are in conflict, but one is going to eventually win. One will gain control and the other will die. Which one will win? That depends on your decision. i give you another little illustration to help us. There is a circus arena with two wild animals fighting each other. Their trainers pull them apart, place each one in a different cage. One receives plenty of food and water. The other one gets almost forgotten, except for a few occasions when it gets a little bit of food, just enough so as not to die. Now, if the two animals meet in that same situation again, which one would be victorious? 
No doubt, the one that was fed, the one that was well-nourished. So God performed a miracle by implanting in us the new divine nature. But if we don't take care of it, if we don't feed it, our sinful nature will always be seizing control of us. Well, you may ask, how do we feed that our natures? It's through our five senses. It's see what we hear, we see, we smell, we taste, and we touch. Everything that enters our mind through these five senses is food, either for your divine nature or your sinful nature. You think about that, what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat. That's why we have to be careful in our choices of the things that we do in everything. And Paul told us, finally, family, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Paul wanted to to help us learn to feed our divine nature. Well, while we're in the world, we're all going to encounter some nourishment for the sinful nature that we don't want. You know, those crumbs slip in. You can't help it. But you don't have to feed your sinful nature with steak. If we feed our sinful nature, and I'm sorry, if we feed our spiritual nature and starve the sinful nature, then the spiritual nature will be stronger. Paul told the Galatians, And those that belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So leave your sinful nature on the cross crucified and don't take it down and feed it. He also told the Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. And it is I no longer that live, but Christ lives in me. We need Jesus' nature to live and rule in us. Now remember when Paul was old, he said, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith, henceforth is laid up for me, what? A crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me at that day, and not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. He says, I overcame, I've reached the goal. Means we can overcome too, we can be victorious. Jesus has promised to always be with us in our struggle. And he will fight for us. And remember he says, take my yoke upon me and learn of me. I'm meek and lowly of heart and you shall find rest to your souls. For my burden, I'm sorry, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That yoke, you know, is the cross piece that the two oxen are attached to so they can pull heavy burdens. But if one ox is bigger and stronger, he's going to bear the heaviest burden. And since Jesus is stronger, he's going to carry our heavy burdens, not us. So whenever you think everybody's forsaken you and you're never going to make it or you think you're a total failure, remember, Jesus is near. He's loving. He's forgiving. He will sustain you. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. As long as we live on this old earth, we're going to have to fight that sinful nature. However, when Jesus comes again, that old nature will be gone, 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 gone. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, 
For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's wonderful. It's fantastic. A new body and no more sinful nature. It's gone. We will have no more internal conflict, no more desire to sin. We will have Christ's nature, a perfect nature that finds joy in love and obedience to God's ways. It's only a matter of time till he comes again and the victory will be definite and eternal. How could I not love someone who loves me so? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise that one day the struggle will be over. Help us to feed our new nature that you've given us and to let the sinful nature starve. We know this is our part, but even this we cannot do by ourselves. Please do for us what we cannot do. And we pray for your blessings on us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.